This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we are joined again by Kevin Chandler of We Carry Kevin to continue our journey through the Gospel of John, exploring the healing of the official son and the healing of the pool of Bethesda. Yeah, great follow-up to our conversation in our last episode. So if you're if you didn't listen to that one and you're like, wait, who's Kevin? We can go back and listen to the last episode, get to hear all about his story. Um, his nonprofit, his book, We Carry Kevin, and and you can definitely listen to that before listening to this to get some perspective. But I'm really excited about these two stories today to get Kevin's perspective, um, especially in the second story. I ran across his thoughts, and they just rocked my world. Um, so interested to get to that. But first of all, before we even get into this conversation, um, Kevin, I wanted to ask you about something. Let's see. It was 150 episodes ago. We were talking about the Gospels, and we were walking through Matthew, and I was doing a teaching in episode, I can't remember, what 102? I'm not even sure what it was. 102, yeah. 102. And and we were talking about the man who is paralyzed, who is lowered through the roof by his friends, which is such a fantastic thinking about last episode. Mm. Man, what a great story. Um because it's the it's the faith of the friends that Jesus sees, and I just love that. Um, nevertheless, and all throughout that story, I kept referencing this man as the paralytic, the paralytic, the paralytic. And somebody graciously but sternly wrote me an email and let to to inform me that that um, that was ableist language. I had never run into the term ableist or ableism before. And in a world where we're becoming so much more aware of these things and the normative experience and the ways that we have marginalized or oppressed or prejudiced ourselves against others, like it was just not a corner of the world I had ever ventured into before. So I started doing like this quick little education and realized what they were talking about and what I had unintentionally done. And so we did a a video that we'll link in the show notes to that episode, uh, an addendum video um, where I just kind of like grapple with that and talk about empathy. Um, and surprisingly enough, I got a lot, I got some dislikes on that video. I don't know what I could have said. Apparently empathy is a bad idea. Um, that's sarcasm for anybody that didn't catch that. But anyway, I became aware of this larger conversation and debate within um, the disabled community. And I think I'm using that term correctly, but even now I, I want to be aware of those kind of things. But of condition first versus identity first language. And the one thing that I learned that day is I is I probably need to be more aware and very much try strive to not use the term like paralytic because it, it it's just it can it confines this whole person's experience into that one identification. And there's this larger conversation of is it a man who struggles with um, being paralyzed, or is it a paralyzed man? Do, how do you talk about the identity? And there's kind of like this debate in the community about what they prefer. And there are uh, many people seem to say there's like a majority uh, opinion, but it's just a majority opinion because there's also a significant, it's a slight majority. So, Kevin, how do you prefer that when it comes to that? How do you prefer people talk about? you and your condition. And and one of the things we're going to say right up front that I know you are adamant about 
is this is not a monolithic conversation. You don't represent the community as a whole. You only represent yourself. You have your perspective and you can't speak for others. And so saying that, what, what has been your experience or your perspective on, on, on your condition and how people talk about it and you? So I, I, I think that it is a conversation we have. Um, but I think also, um, because I think words matter. Um, it's not, I don't think mm-hmm. words matter. Words do matter. <laughs> that, that's just how it is. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's definitely something to consider and to, to bring into conversation. Um, but also words, um, words represent thought and, and words, uh, express what's going on in the heart and in the mind. And so, um, if we just stop with language, um, hmm. then, then we're gonna, we're not going to get very far. <laughs> and so, um, I've had people use, uh, you know, person first language or identity first language, however you want to, want to term it, uh, use the politically correct language, uh, and actually hurt me more than hmm. someone who, who doesn't because they just don't know, you know, or, or they're close to me and comfortable with saying whatever, um, uh, you know, and so I think it, it goes beyond, uh, which word you use, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, I know some parents that, uh, raise their children. This, this may be controversial as well, but they raise their children, not to, not whether or not to swear, but are you, what words are you using? How are you using them to hurt people or to express yourself? You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. one would argue that it's worse to use, uh, to use common words to hurt someone than it is to use profanity in, in a not, right. you know, mean way. And so, so it's kind of the same idea. I'm not something that, um, yeah, that, that's just kind of where I fall on it. I, I personally don't, I'm, I'm not really offended by someone calling me a, a disabled person or that guy in the wheelchair or, you know, anything. It's, it, it's been my, it's part of who I am and it's, it's been that way for, uh, you know, 35 years. And, um, and, and it's, it's part of me. It's not all of me, but, um, but that still means it is part of me and it's part of my story. And, um, you know, something, uh, I, I've actually, I, I really love the story of, of the man lowered through the roof. Um, and I, I haven't looked at what the uh, actual direct translation is, but I mean, he's he's not even typically in the passages uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's not even referred to as the paralyzed man. He's just called the paralytic. You know, like you said, it's it's just the word. And um, and yet, um, what does that do? Um, when when he's healed, when he's physically healed, um, right. what is he called then? And so I actually, as you were um, bringing this up, I flipped there because I, I wondered. And um, I think, so he, he does, in Luke, he says the man who was paralyzed, um, the man who was paralyzed. Luke does 
identity first language, apparently. Um, but he actually, so when Jesus addresses him verbally, he said he calls him man. In another passage, he calls him son. Uh, and it's not until everywhere that it references him, it says the paralytic or the, the paralyzed man or the man who is paralyzed until he's healed. And then it refers to him, it says, and immediately he rose up. So it takes away that qualifier. And now he's just mm. a man. Mm. Um, he picks up the mat that he was lying on and he went out from there. And I just love the idea that from then on, that that phrase wasn't used for him. I, I wonder if people called him by his name or if they called him the guy that was disabled, you know, the, the, the former cripple, you know, like what, what did they call him? Um, hmm. But whatever it was, it wasn't the paralytic. And so, um, you know, I, I don't mind being called disabled. I don't mind being, um, being called the guy in the wheelchair um, because it's part of who I am. And what if one day it's not, um, you know, then there's a testimony there. And, uh, and that's pretty awesome to me. Whenever I'm in the backpack, I'm not the guy in the wheelchair. I'm the guy in the backpack. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, yeah that, that's kind of where I fall on it. But, um, you know, different people are, are, um, at, at different stages in life, I have a long way to go myself, and um, and you know I may change how I feel about it down the road, and, and others may change in other directions. And um, you know, like we talked about in the last episode, I think whether we are the one using the words or we are the one the words are being used on, um, our our identity and our focus needs to be on on the Lord and, and kind of go from there. Um, I think we'll, we'll end up in a better position either way. Yeah. There's like a whole nother episode there. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) the, 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 the real thing that I take away from this conversation is like a reminder that nothing is a monolith. Like it'd be easier if it was, it'd be easier if everything was just clean categories, simple, learn what the right thing is to do, learn what the wrong thing is to do, adjust your behavior. But we're dealing with people and people are complex and their stories are complex and they're unique and they matter. And that's what it means to love others and to see others. That's the work of empathy. And and so I got to hear Kevin's perspective and to honor and respect Kevin, I would get to do that now. But if I were to meet somebody else, I would get to see them and honor them by hearing their story and being aware of that and asking their perspective and honoring and respecting them and that that's the lesson in empathy that I take away from this journey and and um I just find that unbelievably valuable and I think it goes back to so much of what you were sharing in the last episode so and and I would add too that people are dynamic and mm-hmm. as as Kevin said like in the future he may change his mind on what his preferences are for this language so you can't just take something and then hold on to that for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You need to be in a dynamic relationship with that person and, and be aware of how their mind is changing. Um, if it has changed, you know? Yeah. You said 12 years ago, Brent Billings, you said, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. We, we grow, <laughs> we develop, yep. we, we change. I don't even know. Oh, 
things I said. You, you haven't much. changed at all, Brent. You're still saying the same things. <laughs> <laughs> I am, yeah, fairly predictable. I admit. <laughs> Speaking of Brent's predictability, Brent, how about you just get us into the text? Read us some Bible. How about that? All right. Uh, John 4. After the two days he left for Galilee, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Which I'm going to interrupt you right off the bat. <laughs> So, so interesting. Speaking of predictable. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so interesting here. Uh, so there are lots of people that debate, did John have an awareness of the synoptics? Now, when we say synoptics, somebody wrote me the other day, what do you, you keep saying synoptics, what does that mean? Synoptics reference the three gospels that generally harmonize together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are your synoptic gospels. So John is the non-synoptic gospel. So he references here, a teaching story that is only found in the synoptics. Now, a lot of people, not a lot, there is a theory from some scholars that John didn't have the synoptic gospels, whether he wasn't aware of them at all or simply didn't have access to them. And so that means that this, in that school of thought, this would actually have to be an additional, like a later edition, some external addition to the original, which it's in parentheses in the NIV that often clues me that it could be a parenthetical later edition. I, I personally believe John does have an awareness of the synoptics, that his gospel does have a relationship with those other three gospels. But I just found it interesting that here John or some redactor of some kind references directly that's the stories of the synoptic gospels there in here in here in chapter four. So I just wanted to point that out as we went past. Could I could I ask just a quick thing? Um, could it also be? I I don't know, but could it also be that he uh, has that shared memory with the other writers that Jesus said that he just didn't bring it up in the rest of his you know it, he didn't bring it up when it happened. It, yeah, absolutely. It, it absolutely could be. Lots of ways to pull the details together, to harmonize those details, to not even have to harmonize them, but just to mm-hmm. acknowledge the fact that, well, if John was there just like Matthew, if John was there just like any of those other apostles, he'd have the same memory of the same story. He'd call back to it. Um, I think literary scholars are typically going to say he's got to be referencing when he says that he's pointing out of his memory but for the reader's benefit, he has to be connecting it to something. Mm. But that's not necessarily that, – that doesn't have to be true. So it's absolutely possible. Yeah, 100%. Cool. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. All right, Kevin. So I want to I want to ask you right at this point in the story, we just meet we meet this guy's family, his parents, um, a certain royal official, at least the father here in the story. Tell us about um, what has. And obviously you're not your parents, but based on what you know of your parents, what you know of what they've shared, what they've shared with you, what you've heard them share with others, what has their experience been um, with your story and how have you seen it impact them as we listen to – I just find it interesting to have you here because I always read these stories and everybody, everything is just like this esoteric, abstract character 
oh yeah, some official who has a son and and I get to have the opportunity to remind myself like this was a real guy with a real son with a real condition. Mm. And so tell me about what is from your perspective what what it's been like to be your parents through your life. Mm. Yeah, um I mean my parents are just they're they're remarkable to me. <laughs> my uh my my dad's uh he's a retired airplane mechanic and my mom uh has done a lot of work in the um the the pro-life world and and so they're both just like very creative and very bold and um and I think you know if you want an argument for their being a god who <laughs> who puts people together like there there's proof because that's the exact kind of parents I needed and my my sister needed and um with our disabilities and um they I don't know. They they just have a a strength that baffles me in the right way. <laughs> um, and and man, I could just rave about them all day. But um, it's been hard for them in at times and in seasons um, because our our disease um, is threatening at times. Um, growing up, you know, if we uh, got a cold, it could turn into pneumonia, you know, and pneumonia meant two or three weeks in the hospital, you know, and, um, uh, we've had surgeries and, um, procedures and things that, um, were pretty scary. And as, as bold as someone can be and as strong as someone can be, um, there's still, I don't know if I want to say a breaking point, but there is still a, things can still be scary. <laughs> and um, I know that I, I'm thankful that they have each other uh, within that and that they they turn to the Lord um, in those times. So they have their own network of friendships that is so sure. important to them in the same way that you have yours that are so important to your survival and experience every single day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed <laughs> that's a, that does not... Um, it's not a strong enough word, but I've really enjoyed uh, the, the experience of having parents who um, are adventurous themselves. And so whenever I go off and do crazy things like go to Europe or China or, or explore sewers in the backpack, um, they, they really just kind of like laugh and shrug and they're like, of course you will, or of course you did, you know, and, and uh, yeah. fully support me. And then at the same time, um, when there is a concern, like they are, they are at the bat for me. They are, uh, they would be the official here right. <laughs> going to the next town over to find Jesus and being like, no, really, I, I need you. Um, and, and they, so they take, they they take the disease seriously, but they also embrace life and and let that um, happen. Yeah, you you said in the last episode about them, you said they're go getters and they're not the kind of people that are going to like take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. And so I want Brent to read the next three verses. And here's what I find so interesting: when I heard you like the next story that we have in John five, um, when I heard you talk, I, I realized I have always assumed tone. I've always assumed there are so many assumptions I have made in these interchanges, these 
these dialogues, these exchanges in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And I, I am so interested to hear what you hear, because there, there's a lot of similarities between what you describe about your parents and what I'm seeing here in this passage. This royal official who's not here to, he's not here to just like timidly ask a question and then shrink off when... Like he's not, he, he's a go getter. He's not, he's not going to take no necessarily as an answer. Mm. So Brent, give us the next few verses. And then when he's done, Kevin, tell us what you hear in this and, and feel free to take a moment. We'll just edit that pause right out. And you'll sound like you came right in off the, off the reading. The <laughs> I'll sound so smart. <laughs> but Brent, Mark, give us the next, get don't, a, give us the next give few verses. All of my editing secrets, Marty. <laughs> okay. Uh, Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. All right, that's good. Right there. Kevin, lay it on us. What do you got? I'm I'm really curious. Uh, I'm going to do a slight deep dive here, maybe just a a trip into the deep end. But um, uh. Where where do you think this falls in line in the timeline with um, Jesus talking to the Canaanite woman whose whose daughter is demon possessed? Because because at the end of man. that he goes to Galilee, and the conversations actually look a lot alike. Where where this official is like, "Hey, my son needs to be healed," and Jesus gives this kind of kind of off answer, you know, like. When will you guys have enough? Like when? When? When were you? You always need signs and wonders. What the heck? And he does the same thing with the Canaanite woman, where uh, she said she, you know, says, "Have mercy on me, my daughter is uh, oppressed by a demon." And uh, and um, where is it? He he says it's not right for for children's bread to be thrown to the dogs. You know, right. I think, right. so I'm just wondering right. if these happen close to each other and if there's a, a purpose in that. Um, Man, what a fascinating question. I, one of the things that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's like darn near impossible to have a good conversation about chronology with John because he does such weird things with time. Yeah. Just, <laughs> I was just talking about this with the rest of the teaching team, at least a, a, a couple members in different places. Uh, about the Gospel of John because it's so hard to get your chronological feet because mm-hmm. he's really weaving stories together. But I think if you were forced to make a decision, I think most scholars that I'm familiar with are going to say this is early, probably a, around the same time-ish, but this is going to be before the Canaanite woman. So it would have been this story and then maybe not long after this story, the interaction with the Syrophoenician woman mm. in the Synoptic Gospels, mm-hmm. um, and so it could be this and then that, but we couldn't say that for sure. But such a fascinating question to put those two stories uh, next to each other—that's really something. I, I love that. I think it's interesting that Jesus addresses the plural "you," mm. unless you people see signs and wonders, Ooh, yep. and then the royal official just drags him back in. He's like, "No, no, no! We're not here to talk about those other people and what they need. Yeah, my son is gonna die. Please come." Yeah, there's, there's some, uh, there's some, there's, there's. We need to deal with this right now, kind of thing. Like we'll talk about that later. This is a, this is more important. 
Yeah. Which seems, which Kevin, when, when you talk about your parents and your family situation, the, this whole, these three verses just feel totally different to me. Like to take on a whole new light. There's a real practice. And it's not that Jesus is oblivious to that. I wonder with Brent's observation, if Jesus is like having this larger teaching point and this dad is like, Hey, <laughs> Hey, I, I need, I need your help. I, I need your help. My family needs your help. And there's this other conversation too, but cause I just hear this totally differently thinking about your parents, your dad. Uh, this is coming from a different place than when I was sitting in Bible college class, exegeting the gospel of John, and there's an official with a son like that. That is different when I think about you, your family, your parents, this, this has, this hits different in that regard. Yeah. There's a need. And, and I mean, I, I think we can all, well, I think parents, especially can relate to this need. I mean, if you're, if your son or daughter were at this point in illness, you know, like what, how, how would you answer? You know, Right. I, I think I've always heard these verses in like this tone of exasperation. Like Jesus is like, Oh, I can't believe you people. You're only going to believe if you see miracles, the guy demands and Jesus is like, go, your son will live. And I wonder if there's more, Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there's more compassion in the second statement where, Jesus is saying, oh, the need here is so great, and this plural you, and the Father is there, and he's like, hey, look, you go. Like, I can imagine, I can even picture myself in my own much more trivial settings in a church or a weekend speaking event or on a trip to Israel, and and addressing the group about something larger and bigger and having an individual in my ear and me turning to them going, hey, I see you. Mm-hmm. here's my message. I, I got you. Now I'm going to go back to this other thing. Not that that's for sure what Jesus is doing here, but I love, I love the perspective shift there yeah. to make me wrestle. I also love that the official defies Jesus's own observation, unless you people see signs and wonders. Mm-hmm. But then when Jesus says go, it says the man took Jesus at his word. Mm-hmm. So he believed without seeing, which, Oh boy. I, I have some things for that, but I'm going to need you to read the rest of the chapter for me to talk about that, because that is absolutely a juicy little tidbit. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder even if, like, if that's, I mean, is that why Jesus said that? Ooh, yes. In order to kind of set it all up, right? Yep. Like, he wasn't saying it out of frustration, or he wasn't saying it to condemn. He just was, he was making a statement of, like, Here's how things are. Like, if you guys don't see signs, then you're not going to believe. And then he turns and talks to the guy, and everybody listening watches him, watches the guy say, okay, I believe you, and he leaves, you know? Yep. Like Brent was saying. Yeah. Mm, So good. All right, well, let's read the rest of it then. All right. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Which, oh boy. Okay, we were just told the man took Jesus at his word and departed. So he believed, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But then later, when he realizes the exact time, then he and his whole household believed. I thought he already believed. Or did 
or did he believe later? And what I love about this paragraph or two at the end of this chapter is it speaks to this really interesting relationship between belief, trust, confidence, assurance, doubt, wonder. Like this story, in in my mind, as I'm hearing it and reading it, keeps us from making this a binary, Mm -hmm. he has faith, he doesn't have faith. He believes, he doesn't believe. This is far more complex and dynamic. This is, he takes him at his word and he leaves and then gets more, whatever you want to call it, evidence, proof, and, and there's a deeper, more rich belief. I just find that to be so, to me, affirming, because that's what my belief looks like mm-hmm. all throughout my life and my faith experience. I have faith. I get it. I, I take Jesus at his word. I trust. But I also doubt. But I trust. But I doubt. But I trust. And And people love to say, oh, well, then you're not really trusting if you're doubting. Uh, that's not what I'm reading here in this story. This guy takes Jesus at his word and departs. And then on some level, he and, and it's he and his whole household. So now the faith grows, but even as I'm reading it here, and and I think translated well from the Greek, implies his own faith is also involved in this deepening, this developing, this evolving, this growing. I don't know what if you guys have anything to add to that, but I find those two paragraphs i'm like yes whenever i see the complexity of humanity like the realness of somebody's faith walk i love it in the bible because i'm like yes that's what my experience is like it's it is but it isn't it's kind of gray it's not black and white it's kind of this mushy middle and there it is there it is see it's in the gospels and and i just find great encouragement stuff like that yeah i i love that uh i think this goes to what you're saying that it says that the man believed what jesus said and so he went, um, and then later that he himself believed. Um, and I, I experienced that of, of, you know, reading the word or being in prayer and feeling like a, a piece that, you know, on a particular situation or something and, and just saying, all right, I'm just going to trust what you've, what you've said here or what you've put before me. Um, and then as, as that comes to fruition, as that's made, you know, as that's fulfilled, then, then my overall belief is like more anchored. Right. Um, and I, I just, yeah, I, I see that here. Like you said, the, the humanity of, of, I'm going to trust what you said. And now I get to see that it, that it was, it was trustworthy. And so now I'm just going to trust even more, you know, and trust in a deeper, new way. Yeah, you say that. And I think of like the first faith was like a faith without experience. Like it was Mm -hmm. like, but then all of a sudden you had experience and your faith did something totally different. Like it went to new places empowered by that experience where you, and and I, I love how experience and which one of us listening to this that can hear my voice hasn't had that experience in our own faith walks, no matter how mature spiritually we may or may not be where we've taken Jesus at his word, but only through you look back on the last 10 years, you had that unbelievable crisis. You went through that 
painful situation, you saw that blessing, whatever it was, and those experiences have radically changed what it means to trust and believe, the way that you trust and believe, how much you trust and believe in both directions, and experience changes those things. So I love that. It's great. It, I mean, really, the, the first the first belief, I guess, or the first trust that he has, it, it's the same word both times in the Greek here. I, I don't remember what the word is, but I remember noticing it's, it's the same word. But um, the first one is a trust with hope right? Like looking forward. And the second one is a trust with experience, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. All right, Brent, with no further ado, we should get into chapter five. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Ah, Bethesda. I hate it when the text says Aramaic. What a dumb, arbitrary translation. You know what's so crazy is the NET still says in Aramaic. But when you look at the footnote, it says the Greek says in Hebrew. It's like, well, then why don't you say in Hebrew? (laughs) Darn tootin'. Darn tootin'. All right. All right. Go ahead, Brent. Sorry, I can never hear that. (laughs) Uh, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, uh, which that's another argument. Apparently check out the NAT footnotes for a huge note on what all the possibilities are there. Um, either way, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? All right. So there's a lot of things I'm not going to talk about here because I keep some of this lesson behind the curtain for my Israel tours, uh, where we actually get to go to the ruins of this pool, which I do think kind of solves some of the mystery behind Bethesda and which pool we're talking about or those kind of things. It was somewhat recent archaeology where we uncovered the five colonnades and those things where it was like, okay, we thought this was the place. This is probably definitely the place. And we became a whole lot more sure of that, but maybe just a little bit of helpful context. Uh, give me, read me verse four, Brent and the NIV. Well, the NIV relegates it to a footnote, (laughs) but it says, uh, I have to read verse three with it. That's always so much fun whenever somebody has an NIV paper Bible because they go, they keep trying to find verse four and they can't find it. <laughs> do you actually want me to read it? I do. Give me the footnote of what, what's been in some manuscripts, but not the best ones. The, uh, so verse three, it says here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And that's where verse three ends in the main text. Verse three continues in the footnote. And they waited for the moving of the waters, and then verse 4 in the footnote, from time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters, the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Okay, so that sounds kind of crazy, kind of <laughs> like uh, kind of like your last episode in the story of a back room with a statue of Virgin Mary in it. Like a, there's this sense of, and, and you can, so, so here's some of the contextual background. What was happening? What was happening physically that this later edition, this footnoted manuscript discrepancy, is referring to? Well, as far as I have been taught, we now know that what was happening at the pools of Bethesda 
was Herod had built a water system for his palace, which sat on the other side of Jerusalem. And this water system was somewhat complex and kind of connected to all the other water systems in Jerusalem. And whenever he would open up that water system, you know, once or twice a day, or maybe even less than that, I don't even know, but it would create the physics of the situation, which I'm no scientist, don't ask me to be one, but the physics of the situation would cause the pool to, the pool of Bethesda, the water there to be disturbed or to start to turn and to move because of the physics of the larger water system at play. Well, they don't, the people that observe the pool don't understand the physics that are taking place. And so what they see there is water magically moving. And so this legend that John references, some manuscripts, later manuscripts reference, is this kind of legendary idea that there's an angel stirring the waters. Now, what we'll find if you go on a trip with me to Israel is anytime you have water and any sense of magical, the pagan understanding is going to connect it to Asclopion, Asclopius, the god Asclopius and the Asclopion, which we talked about in session four. And what was the, what was the Asclopion, Brent Billings? Uh, That's where, that's basically the hospital of their day. Yeah, essentially, yeah, a pagan hospital connected to the healing powers of Asclopius. And wouldn't you know it, but we've found the ruins of an Asclopion, a small, a small little Asclopion temple right on the edge of the pools of Bethesda. So here you have this pool in Jerusalem where the priesthood will come in and wash the sacrifices. So it has a very sacred Jewish function. And then right on the edge of this pool sits an Asclopian. There's some debate about how you know, how old is the temple and where does it date to and all those kinds of things. But it, it shows you that this pool was connected in both pagan and a Jewish sense to this belief that something was going to happen, something miraculous, something mysterious, something magical is going to happen in these waters. That's why you have people gathered around these pools is because this pool doesn't act like other pools. And there's got to be something, whether it's an angel, whether it's Asclepius, there's something going, that's why these folks are gathered here. And so Jesus visits this pool and that's the setting for where the story takes place. So he sees this invalid who's uh, suffered with his condition for 38 years, which, by the way, feels like an odd number. If you do your remez work, you're going to find out that 38 only shows up in one reference in the Old Testament. It's the amount of time that, what? Either one of you? Kevin, Brent, who wants to play? Go for it, Brent. (laughs) I never want to play. (laughs) I hate this game. (laughs) 38 years is the amount of years that Israel wandered in the desert, according to the book of Deuteronomy, they spent two years building the tabernacle, kind of camped outside Sinai. And we always say they wandered for 40 years. Deuteronomy says they actually watered exact, the exact amount of their wandering is 38 years. And you wonder what the remez here is. Is it a remez to the fact that this guy has been in his own wilderness, which is about ready to come to an end? Is there a reference to Deuteronomy and obedience or disobedience? That We, we can all wrestle with the drosh, but I find the remez there to be interesting and instructive. And then Jesus asks this question, do you want to get well? Which seems like one of Jesus, I don't actually believe this. It just seems on the surface, like one of Jesus's worst questions, like this was not his best question asking day. Like, of course, Jesus. And, and then I, and then I read some of Kevin's thoughts on what happens next, because I always, again, like the last story, assumed tone 
I always assumed that this guy is making making excuses. Here's this guy laying by the edge of the pool, and Jesus says, do you want to get well? And he's just got a big list of excuses about why he's in his condition. And Kevin, you unless you've changed your position, because you may have evolved in the last few years, <laughs> I want tell us about how you hear, based on your own experience, what do you hear in these... First of all, Brent, go ahead and read verse 7. And then, uh, Kevin, talk to us about what you hear when you hear this conversation. So Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? And uh, it says, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Kevin, tell us about what you hear, because you don't hear just a big list of excuses. You hear something else. Am I right? Uh, yeah. And, and I... I hold it loosely, but I, I also really, um, like you said, from my experience, um, walking with the Lord, I, I don't know. I, I relate to this guy in some ways. Um, and it kind of, if I can attach it to what Jesus asked him, um, rather than, uh, an exchange of, of Jesus offering the healing, and the guy making excuses, which is what we normally assume. Um, you know, I think Jesus was just starting a conversation. <laughs> you know, I think Jesus sidled up next to him, saw him sitting there and was like, do you want to be healed? Like, right, basically, I don't know, like, what, what's on your mind kind of thing. Um, and the guy, I, I don't think that he was necessarily making excuses that that is the tone that we typically read it but i think he's just uh stating what his experience has been so far um you know and and part of me wonders if uh if he's actually kind of got it scripted by now if he's been sitting there for a long time um maybe he's asked other people to help him or people have asked him you know, why are you still sitting here? I've seen you here before. So, I mean, I know for me, um, there are aspects of my disability that I get asked about a lot. And um, at times in, in seasons of my life, I've had scripted answers, not even because I meant to, but just because I had to answer it so often. Um, and so I wonder if uh, Jesus kind of, showed up next to him really nonchalantly and asked his question. Maybe he sat down next to him. I don't know. Um, asked this, this potentially penetrating question um, for the guy. And um, I wonder if the guy even really heard what Jesus asked, oh, um, heard the, the heart behind it, or if he just heard another person asking him, Probably the same, you know, like, oh, great, here's another one. And just yep. launched into his everyday explanation. Um, you know, maybe I, I wrote a short story about this once. Maybe it's what you're referencing. But, you know, right before this, maybe there was a an eight-year-old that came up and stared at him. And was like, what are you doing? You know, and so he just had to say it all again. And, um, and you know, I've been here since before you were born kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think he was so swallowed up in his, his own situation that he couldn't have a conversation. He, he couldn't give Jesus a, 
an answer, a direct answer. He couldn't even uh, consciously put together a list of excuses. He just had this thing that he always says, you know, um, that that's what it sounds like to me more so. Yeah. It it just blew my mind when I, I heard that take. And another thing I heard you say was that I think he's getting ready to ask for help. Like this is his, this is the regular, this is the regular thing he always goes into. Right. And when you said that, I went, now, Brent, just for sake of context, so we know, spoiler alert, where the story is headed, <laughs> give us the next little chunk, uh, verse 8 and, and the first part of verse 9. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And when I bumped into Kevin's perspective and take on this, I immediately went back to when I was in, before I got into campus ministry and worked for Impact, I worked for about four years at my home church in Twin Falls, Idaho. And we, one of my parts of my job was to run an outreach for those that struggle with homelessness and different kinds of poverty in the larger community. And one of the things that we did, we ran a, a little thing called Main Street Ministries. And, and we just tried to be generous in ways that would acts of mercy that would potentially lead to justice and restoration of different situations. And so we we had these systems where people would come in and apply for help and then and this was so true. People would come in, I would have I mean we'd make small talk, I would have a very general opener of you know what what is it that you'd love to see and experience in your life? I, I knew what I generally knew what the answer was going to be, and they would immediately go into the explanation that they've been giving for who knows how many years. Mm-hmm. Here it is. Here's my situation. Let me explain how I got here. It wasn't excuses. It was, <sighs> I've had to tell this story so many times to try to justify who I am and where I'm at and why I'm struggling, and here we go. And somewhere along the way, I love to be able to step into that situation. It was like a joy to be able to help them when that right moment of the conversation, the door opens and you get to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're used to telling that story. Here you go. Here's the answer to that part of your story. Here's the help for that situation. And now all of a sudden I read this story and I go, oh my goodness, have I been reading it wrong the whole time? And I don't know if I am or I'm not. But I love that perspective shift because that conversation sounds completely different to me when I consider that. And I have my own experience. Kevin has his, but I've even had my own from the other side of the situation going, well, of course, that's exactly how those conversations went, exactly like that. Um, And and so I just can totally see that and appreciate that. That's so good. But the story continues. Uh, Brent? Take us on. Sorry, could I just throw one more thing out there as a side note? You better interrupt us, Kevin. That's why you're here. If you don't, I just keep steamrolling the whole thing. <laughs> well, if I know that, I know. Um, uh, so, uh, just going back to our conversation at the beginning of the show about um, person first, or, or you know, situation first, and, and everything. Um, I mean, if we look here, he's the invalid. He's the sick man. And then when Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. Like he suddenly 
he doesn't have those qualifiers anymore. Yep. The man, and then, and then I'm looking at the verses that follow yeah. the man who had been healed in the next two verses. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I love that observation there. Yeah. Um, that's cool. That's great. <laughs> All right, Brent, take us on. Okay. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Which I would love to know if they have seen. Uh, did they just see a dude carrying a mat on the Sabbath? Or did they just see the whole ordeal? And this <laughs> yeah, this is the thing that they're fixed on. Like, Did they just witness the whole thing? And they're like, hey, Sabbath, mat carrying, knock it off. Like. <laughs> we're not told we can make assumptions either way argument of silence but man I, I i everything in me just hopes that they didn't just witness this and their response but maybe i've been around far too many church people to uh, be too cynical about that yeah. but anyway nevertheless but he replied the man who made me well said to me pick up your mat and walk so they asked him who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Okay, so more to Kevin's point earlier. I don't. This guy does not seem to understand who Jesus is. Not at the beginning of the conversation that he starts with Jesus. It's not like he knew, like, oh, hey, there's that famous rabbi who just sat down next to me who asked me. Mm. So that kind of definitely backs up the picture that Kevin is painting here. It's just another guy that sat down next to me. To talk. He didn't know who he was before. He doesn't even know who he is after. And uh, I don't know, maybe we want to wait on this, but um, I feel like the the tone uh, conversation happens here as well. Um, the assumed tone. Okay, I, I, I love that. I'm going to wait to give us the rest of this passage, and I, I want to hear more. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. All right. So before I make a total jerk of myself, blow my mind again, Kevin. Lay it on. Uh, uh, uh. Well, I'm, I'm just wondering. I, so I feel like this guy gets, uh, well, this is a terrible way to put this considering his situation. But I feel like he gets thrown under the bus a lot. Um, and uh, just by us who read it now, because... Um, you know, we read this and we assume that he's making excuses. And then down here, he says, the man who healed me or the man who made me well, he told me to take up my bed and walk. Um, and I, I, I feel like usually we read that or we hear that and we run with, um, he got in trouble. So he's pointing the blame, you know, but, but I wonder, I wonder if it's actually more like, um, Take it up with that guy because he healed me, which I think it's gives him more authority than you, you know, or like he's I wonder how much joy is in his voice in this moment versus, you know, uh I don't know, calling out the guy that just just changed his life. Yeah, how do you hear that next statement from Jesus, Kevin? That's the one that that sticks with me. Mm-hmm. When Jesus says, See you are well, stop sinning or something. How do you hear the stop sinning as an indication that there's something about what he's doing or do you hear that differently as well? Yeah. Um, so I had never thought of it in the sense of stop sinning um, just because the, the ESV that I, I usually read says sin no more, which is more general, right? So, yep. so yep. if it is direct in the moment, then that, that may inform 
his posture, you know, yep. in, in the conversation up till now. Um, yep. But yeah, I, it makes me wonder if he is, if he was an invalid because, uh, because of his actions, not so much because of, uh, he wasn't born a certain way. He just, you know, maybe he got himself in trouble with the wrong people or something, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you take the more ESV rendering, you, you could read that in a sense as, you know, like see your well again, if you don't go live in freedom, this whole thing can crumble back. Like go like be live the life that you've been set free to live. Yeah. Otherwise this whole thing's going to spin back around on you. But he is also talking about sin, right? Oh, sorry. Right. Right. Which, yep. yep. Which is a, a much deeper heart thing. So, sure. you know, I, I wonder, do you, I wonder if he's addressing that conversation that he just had with the Pharisees or if he's kind of having a separate, you know, cause it says that, that Jesus found him, um, uh, you know, later. And, and right. so is he just saying like, listen, I healed your body, but there's some heart stuff that you need to get right or, <laughs> Or, or it's going to be way worse than just having a body that doesn't work. Man, man, you just said that, and I just realized he's in the temple when Jesus finds him, which is not the pools of Bethesda. Mm. So that is very. In, I, I feel like an idiot that I haven't noticed that before. Brent, I, I heard your <laughs> voice. What were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to say, as far as stop sinning versus sin no more, uh, the NET goes with don't sin anymore. But they do have a footnote explaining how it could be stop sinning, but then they make their argument suggesting why it doesn't actually make sense in this case. So interesting. Now I'll tell you how I've I'll kind of close with my take on on what I've always I, I and again this is informed by my perspective in ministry and the people that I work alongside of. I've always felt like this guy has this unbelievable experience, but then like based on the conversation he's having with the Pharisees, I always used to read it. I'm challenged now. I'm challenged <laughs> because of Kevin's take. But I used to read this as he takes his mat, he's carrying it around, and he's kind of flaunting. Like he's kind of walking with this sense of like, oh man, I've been healed and I am I am just and I'm still carrying my mat. Like there's it's one thing to be healed, to take your mat and to go home. It's another thing to be healed, to take your mat, to head to the temple to walk around in front of everybody. And that could be a huge assumption on my part. Totally, totally challenged today. Mm. Um, But I've always heard Jesus say, listen, you're healed, but that's not what we're supposed to be doing with our healing and our freedom. So, so knock that off and go walk in the way that we're supposed to walk. Mm. um, So that, cause I, and, and see, I work with college students and I work with, millennials and gen z now and all those kind of and there is this thing where there's almost this danger of when you've walked through that the flames of deconstruction when you've when you've when you see things with a new set of eyes and there's there can sometimes be this danger where you kind of walk around with this chip on your shoulder and and i think there's a word in this story potentially potentially there's a word in this story of all right, you've seen the light, you've tasted of Jesus, like this is good. Be careful how you carry this self-righteous newfound knowledge. Mm. Um, because because if, if if you don't carry this well, you're going to end up in a worse spot than where you began. Um, the responsibility of that same experience we talked about in the John 4 story. 
um, the healing of the official son, where we've now experienced what maybe the lesson here in these two stories is what do you do with the experiential faith? Like you have faith, then you experience that. And then what do you do with that faith at that point? Um, what does faith look like when you've experienced the goodness, the healing, the Jesus, the Christ? What do you do at that moment is also a very important conversation. But I digress. What do you guys think? Anything before we close? Oh, man. That sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm on board. Well, there you go. I'll take it then. I'll take it while I'm ahead. <laughs> We've said but I have. I will wrestle with this story more than I ever have um, in this last year, and especially after today. I really love taking this story, turning it in a new direction, and seeing a whole new part of the prism shining through the gym. And uh, it, it may change the way I – I may never be able to do the same lesson I do at the Pools of Bethesda again. I may be ruined forever, and I'll blame Kevin. I'll say <laughs> Kevin's ruined my lesson at the Pools of Bethesda. Well, if I can um, just add on to that too, I, you know, what we can see here just completely directly is, um, you know, without um, – there's a lot in this story that we can learn from if we – take the different angles and you know i mean there's even just as we've heard a thousand different sermons assuming that he's making excuses there are things to learn in that version as well right um yep yep but something that i'm even just sitting here reading it now and, and talking through it with you guys something that strikes me is that jesus jesus meets him where he is and jesus meets him where he is twice right yeah Yep, and yep. and that that's just an aspect of this that doesn't, it, it, you know, it's, it's not it's not opinion. It's just like right there, like he's literally sitting, he's literally in the temple, and Jesus finds him, you know. And um, I, I'm just so thankful for that too that um, that Jesus does that. He he seeks him out, and um, and the first time he finds him, it's it's this question in order to uh, maybe to get a conversation started and the second time it's it's instructive you know but either way jesus uh meets him where he is and i'm i'm just thankful for that in in my own life and you know in the lives around me that i've seen that happen amen and amen to that yeah that's great yeah i think i think where i'm at with this story is that i just need to to wrestle with the new perspective and just mm. just dwell on it for a while so that's that's kind of why i don't have any thoughts formed yet <laughs> It's good enough. I'm gonna. We're gonna allow it. Kevin and I are gonna allow it. All right. Well, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at eibcb, and you can find more details about the show at bamondeshipship.com. Kevin, it's been a pleasure having with you with us for an extra episode. Uh, I'll include your website uh, in the show notes as well uh, for people to get in touch with you. Thank you. So yeah, thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. By the way, Kevin, I didn't have a, a place, a good place to mention this in the episode, but you, um, you, you talked about being in Sacre-Cœur and how it's this like place of prayer and it's been dedicated to prayer for 250 years and all this stuff. And, uh, I thought that was hilarious because my wife and I had the same sort of impression when we went there, uh, on our honeymoon and we thought this is a great spot. And we like 
I can't remember if we knelt down or sat down or something, but we were just praying together in like pretty low, not whispering, but like low hushed voices. And we got asked to leave because we were being too loud. What? <laughs> so, oh my goodness. Are they yeah. really dedicated to prayer? I don't know. <laughs> Banners are a lie. <laughs> Probably the, the, the like, I, I wonder, <laughs> I just get this image in my head of like, they do have a cycle of people that like a vigil of people that come in and pray, but they're like scheduled and it's like, yeah. in a corner in the basement and no one right <laughs> if you come in anywhere else you're not allowed to <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> not apparently not. Right. that's so funny oh i'm sorry that's uh it's all that's, it's all good <laughs> it's funny and really sad <laughs> <laughs>